Welcome to CTO Think, a podcast about leadership, product development, and tech decisions between two recovering chief technology officers. Here are your hosts, Don Vandemark and Randy Burgess. Hey, Randy. Uh, how's everything going well this week? Everything's going great. I, we're going to skip talking about ourselves and we have a guest. Yes. Yeah, so so today today we've got uh, Jess, Jess Schmida with us today. Uh, welcome, Jess. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. Sure. So Jess is the CTO at Axios. Um, and, and we invited her on because uh, in our previous episode, we had been talking about the evolution of the CTO role and, and how it differs as, as companies grow and all that. And, and I had stumbled across a post by Jess on her blog talking about how, how she fits a lot of those different roles. So we thought it would be great to have her on and talk about some of that. So Jess, could you give us just an introduction of, of yourself, a little bit about what you do and, and how you got to where you are? Yeah, happy to. Uh, well, let's see. I've been in tech since I was a kid. Uh, got a computer early on. That's about it. So I taught myself basic and all those kind of stuff. Uh, had an IT support company in my neighborhood when I was a teenager uh, in like the mid-90s and ended up uh, doing uh, system in stuff. I was a Solaris admin for a number of years in the late 90s. Did DevOps before there was DevOps with terrible Perl scripts and everything like that. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a lot of fun. Uh, I ended up doing some web consulting, uh, built a bunch of terrible PHP sites, joined a consulting group. Um, I think the highlight of the consulting group was that we built a wireless ISP from scratch. So I did all that engineering. That was really wow. pretty exciting up in the, in the Berkshires in Massachusetts. And uh, eventually uh, joined a, uh, a men's magazines and sports supplements company uh, where I built all their technology and then the team around it and grew that team to about eight. Uh, and then uh, her met somebody who had this idea for um, a way to help retailers uh, deal with their returns more effectively. Uh, there was a ton of returns in the marketplace and basically a lot of retailers were just throwing them away. And so in 2010, we founded Optoro um, and grew that from just a handful of people to about 250, uh, which is where they are now before I left. Uh, and then about... Wow. Yeah, about four or five months ago, I had somebody reach out to me and talk to me about what Axios was doing, uh, which uh, was really interesting. I uh, shockingly had not heard of Axios before I joined, um, but uh, I was really excited to learn about um, how Axios is really trying to cut through the noise in the news uh, business. I mean, there's a whole ton of... It's actually, just to back up for a second, it was founded by the some of the same people who founded Politico. And what they noticed is that Politico, um, only about 25% of the people would get past the first paragraph, and only maybe 5% of the people would get to the end. And wow. yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so like <laughs> news is kind of broken. So they uh, decided to create Axios to focus on uh, you know what matters in a way that's worthy of your time. Uh, and built that about starting about two years ago. And so uh, they, uh, you know, really got a lot of really great influential people reading very quickly. I think most of the Hill reads us. I think, you know, a whole bunch of uh, leaders in, in industries all over the place read us, which is a great honor for us. But some of those leaders um, came to us and they're like, wow, you, you communicate so effectively. Can you help us communicate that effectively? Uh, and so we did some consulting, we identified a product opportunity to help people communicate more effectively. And that's when they realized they really needed to become more of a tech and product company. And, um, that's, uh, when, uh, they started looking for, for people like me. Uh, and, uh, so I joined about three months ago, 
uh, coming into, you know, what's uh, really a digital media company in its structure, um, uh, but is really hungry, I think, to be a product company and a tech company. And so we, uh, I joined, uh, chief product officer joined about a week after I did. Uh, we're now building the team um, pretty quickly. And so it's a really exciting place to be. Well, excellent. Excellent. And it's, uh, so the, the blog post that you had put out there, it, it was, it was just simply titled the CTO role. And, and what we had been talking about, uh, when, when Randy and I were talking last episode, we were talking about how it changes as a company grows from being the person who can explain the technology to, uh, a potential co-founder or founder um, to maybe being the first developer to then having to grow into uh, how do you scale all this up, get your DevOps in place to having to manage people and that, that whole progression that it takes. Um, and your, your, your blog post here was, was very much about how you've been able to do a lot of that through through your career and how, how you feel you can fit each of those things. So why don't you talk a little bit about, um, about the blog post and, and what was covered in it? Yeah, sure. So I wrote that post um, when I was considering, uh, do I want a VP of engineering here at, at Axios? And I, you know, I was thinking a lot about this and really trying to think hard about it because I'd never had a VP of engineering before. Uh, through a variety of reasons. It never made sense. It was never something we searched for. Um, but, you know, I was present, presented with the question a number of times, and I really was thinking hard. And so I did a lot of reading about what other people talked about, the difference between a CTO and a VP of Eng, and how those roles pair together or don't. Um, and fundamentally, just realized that my perspective on, um, at least through the sizes of companies that I've been with, and, and there's a lot to be said about companies that scales beyond where I've you know, personally seen, but in the sizes of the companies that I've been with, like that kind of bifurcation doesn't seem to have made sense for me. Uh, what's made sense for me is, uh, you know, certainly to step away from a lot of the day to day, but to have, you know, functional area leads that are really great in their domains. And so maybe to some extent, some people might call them like VPs of engineering, um, but I've called them chapter leadership. Uh, typically they've been directors and senior directors, you know, occasionally somebody has had a VP title, but it's not been a VP of engineering, I think, especially as the industry thinks about it. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a very deeply technical person. I'm also very, very focused on people. Uh, I think that is pretty rare among technical leadership. Mm -hmm. Um, I do like to lean into that combination of strengths. I think that it helps me create an organization that's more effective. Um, but you know, I, I recognize that that's my approach. Uh, I certainly don't think this should be everyone's approach. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, um, so, yeah. so the, what you're kind of talking about, um, you mentioned <laughs> the one comment of your background that struck with me the most was I have a history of horrible PHP sites. Um, and I, <laughs> I, and I definitely have that in my background. And so, but as I've talked to lots of CTOs, hiring VP of engineering, and they may be talking to me about the role or something else. I've found that you're different in that you have the technical background. You've built uh. things from scratch. You learned at the technical level versus you learned at the management executive level. And so the VP of engineering title is really where people, unlike yourself, need someone to fill in the blanks because they don't have always that technical technical expertise and that's generalizing i know but i that's what i've often found 
um, is that a lot of CTOs hiring VP of engineering folks or that have them don't have that background that you have. Uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I saw that in what most people was, were writing uh, in various posts. Like it was it was either this, uh, you know, a CTO is a business person uh, or a manager who needs to have somebody come in and help make sure the technology is working well. Or it was the other way around where the CTO was like the, the deeply technical visionary and then couldn't bring the, the people management to the table. Uh, and I do think bridging that divide and in technical leadership at large, I think I've seen that's a pretty rare thing to both have technical depth and uh, that kind of emotional intelligence and, and people skills to be able to bring everything together. Uh, and, and I mean, it's, it's great when I find that's what I look for in my technical leaders, but I think it is rare. Yeah. I think there's also an element of title creep that as big companies get bigger, kind of like a bank, you can go to a local bank office and everyone's a VP. <laughs> so you start to need, like, you need to keep people happy and title elevation is part of it. And you start to see senior and lead team devs and all that kind of stuff creep up too. You can only only oh, have yeah. one VP of engineering in most cases, but that hasn't stopped banks from doing that kind of thing too. Yeah. You know, and this is the thing I thought again about like title creep in their industry is ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And whether you can only have one VP of Eng or not actually is another thing I've been toying with. Like, I think that as an industry, we think about the VP of engineering. We think about it as being a singular thing, but what if we had multiple VPs of engineering and VP was simply an advancement step in a ranking sort of system? Yeah. I think that actually could make sense. And I think that most of what I was writing about was uh, this idea of a singular VP uh, as like owning some major domain. Like I just feel like that would be uh, unnatural for me and, and friction for me, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, go ahead. For, for John, sure. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. I, I, what I was going to say is it, it does, it kind of mirrors what the, the, the progression my, my career took is I worked, I worked my way from developer to project manager to um, essentially account executive and then to CTO. So it was that mixture of technical to, to um, projects to business and then the overall oversight of of people. Um, so, it, but I've also seen along that progression that doesn't, that doesn't work for everyone. Um, that the, there are plenty of really good developers who need to stay in development, need to, need to be bringing their technical expertise because their project management skills or their people management skills aren't as strong. Um, and, and I think, um, I think it's just a, a career choice that everybody's got to make and feel out what, what works for them. And it sounds like it's worked out well for you that, that you've been able to do pretty much all of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think this is actually an area in which I have struggled with is to understand that not everybody does this because you're, you're totally right. <laughs> but like the way I've structured some organizational things in the past that I think where I've met friction have been in assuming that, uh, you know, a leader in a certain engineering function can be both technical and great at people. Uh, and I think that's an area that like, for example, I have used to say at one point in my life <laughs> that I don't understand the role of the architect and I think architects are dumb. <laughs> <laughs> well, I agree with you. But <laughs> I worked at IBM, so well, I fair. completely have that. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. So I think though, I, I've come around to this idea of there's a need for a deeply technical leadership in a way of like, I see I have a vision and I want to bring that vision into reality kind of a leadership. And I want to get people on board with that vision as opposed to like the management structure. And so I think that there's, I think, room in organizations, uh, and as I look forward into the organizational structures, for these kinds of technical leaders uh, that aren't managers. And I, and I think that then I, that lets me start to think about how to bifurcate that structure as it fits the people and the organization and all those kinds of things. Um, but for, for myself, I like to think about it all together. <laughs> right, right. Well, the... so. The, the, the comment about architects, which I don't consider myself an architect ever because I'm always, a con like at the end of the day, I'm also a general contractor and a contractor. I'm also coding. And the, we get the term architect usually from like construction. That's where we kind of first think about it. At least I do. And in that world, there's a great divide between the people implementing the design, the people that are coming up with it. And the architecture is, in a way, a sales process, too, for a lot of uh, people in that business. But in our world, there's a really narrow line between what is an architect and a person that turns around and actually works on the code and does the build. And so that's why I think it just doesn't make as much sense in our industry. I know there are people that hang on to that title. Like, it's something they will never give up, like being knighted by the queen. But it doesn't, and I've just never been in a, at a company big enough where someone could just be an architect and that's all they did was just sit there and think about what everyone should be doing versus being, yeah. a, being like hands on in it. And that's just, again, a product of being a small company is I think on my side. Yeah. I worked with um, some, you know, really major retailers in my last organization and uh, you know, top like names you would easily understand recognize um and certainly worked with an architecture group at one point to do an assessment of our technology to see how it would fit into what they have going on there uh it was an interesting perspective into how that function was working at a large organization uh it seemed like there was just such a vast array of different systems and capabilities that they had built over the years and a lot of legacy too that just fitting the pieces together and understanding the kind of interfaces between them and how they would impact each other was a full-time role. And in fact, yeah. actually it sounded like there was a whole group of like three to five people who was just doing this. So, and then they came to us and they wanted to understand like our, you know, system characteristics, performance things. I mean, it was a cloud-based product. So more about how like the APIs were going to integrate yeah. the kinds of, you know, um, SLAs we were going to provide or security and things like that. But they went pretty deep in a lot of really interesting ways. And it seemed to be right at that level of organization. Yeah. But uh, that's a big organization. <laughs> so how, how big is the Axios technology team? And you, you may have already mentioned Oh, sure. To... No, 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 it's fine. So Axios right now is about 160 folks. And of that, about 23 uh, makes up product and tech. Uh, and I we're still doing budget numbers for the year. Yeah. But I might double it this year. Uh, so we'll see. It really depends on the market traction. We get all the new products and uh, how that goes forward. But... Uh, we have very big dreams. Uh, we really hope our new products could be as ubiquitous as Slack. So yeah. we'll see how we go. <laughs> so then I guess when you, not talking about the numbers of people, not talking about your budget numbers, but when you think about, hey, we, we may double the team over the course of the next year, do you still in your mind see it as like a very flat team where titles aren't a significance? 
because we talked about the CTO role and your blog post was obviously talking about that split with the, with the next person down. But where do you envision titles being somewhat necessary just to have a hierarchy of who sets priorities, perhaps? Like, what do you see if, sure. if you're going to double that size? What do you kind of see happening with titles in that in that aspect? Yeah. Yeah. So, um just to clarify one thing, I don't th- I don't believe in flat organizations. I don't think that actually makes sense, mm-hmm. and that's not what we have today, and it's not how I would go forward. Um, and for context, at Optoro, at my last place, I had a team of about ninety, yeah. so I've scaled this up to a decent size. Um, the way I think about it is, I guess let me back up a step and say how we're kind of operating model is we're structured in the cross-functional squad or pod mm-hmm. model. Um, some people call it the Spotify model. Uh, where we have these, uh, I like to call them autonomous collectives, hmm. <laughs> where there's like a product manager, some number of engineers, a quality engineer, a designer, and they own products or aspects of a product from soup to nuts. Um, and they, inside of a squad, it's a small team of like, you know, five to 10 people. Uh, I think it's really important not to have a manager in that squad. I think it's really important to try to make that organizational unit as flat as possible mm-hmm. because it helps promote things like psychological safety. It helps promote better outcomes for the team. It, it helps everybody think about what is their, you know, strengths that they can bring to the table and make the entire product successful. And we hold the squad together as a unit accountable for delivering on a great product or aspect of a product as it mm-hmm. may be. Um, so for example, a squad here owns Axios.com. Another squad owns, uh, we're looking at maybe shipping an app. Uh, so we're doing that kind of thing. Another squad owns some of these new communication products. So, Outside of the squad model, uh, it's really important to have leadership and management. Yeah. <laughs> it's really important to have, to have people who understand what it is to be a great Python coder or a great React developer and, and help people understand that and hold them accountable to doing great things at that. And so we have what we call chapters, again, pulling from the Spotify terminology. Uh, and so a, a chapter is like a front-end development chapter or a back-end development chapter. Uh, chapters have leadership. Typically, it's like a director or something, although it might be a VP at some point. Uh, and they are responsible for defining what it is to be a great, you name it, a great front-end developer yeah. or whatever. Uh, hold people accountable to doing a great job. Uh, do that kind of management, the performance evaluation, the advancements and growth, hiring, all those kinds of things. That happens in the chapter. And it's uh, the big differentiation, I think, in this model is that um, the selection of what to do and handing out work and slicing it apart isn't done by that leader as much as it's done by the squad itself and, and determining where to go. And so the, the chapter leadership determines um, how to do the job great, and the squad determines what to do. Interesting. So uh, real quick, I want to... I wanna... Uh, talk about the, the naming of these these teams, be, and and you briefly mentioned it as you were talking about chapters, but this is the first time I've heard the the terms chapters and squads used in this context. Um, where did that come from? As far as what where where you is that something you've seen in the past? Is it something you came up with? Yeah, no, we uh, we pulled the terminology from uh, some of the writing that Spotify did about their engineering culture. Uh, okay. Heinrich Nieberg wrote a lot about this, uh, gosh, years ago. Uh, so in their model, there's four uh, organizing concepts. Um, there's uh, they call it the the tribe, the squad, uh, the chapter, and the guild. Uh, we've uh, decided to change the tribe word to house. Uh, so, but like a, a house for us is a collection of squads that operates in a given product domain. So uh, for Spotify, for example, they have a house that's all about the desktop player 
And then they have different squads for like the playlist component or the playback ability or things like that, where they can have aspects of the products in a team that can really own it and make it great. Uh, but together, the house owns a holistic product. Uh, and so that's more of like a product organizational structure. Um, then the chapter organizational structure is defining um, like leadership in, in how we think of t uh, traditional like engineering management, like performance evaluation, growth of staff, uh, effective outcomes, um, you know, good technology in general comes to that. Uh, and then the guild as an organizing component is more about here, I think, as a way to uh, have internal learning and development. Uh, so for example, there may be a guild around machine learning or a guild around um, view. Uh, or, and this is more of an informal thing with, which Spotify uses to structure their, uh, their corporate retreats to give people an opportunity to you know, have like an internal conference or something. I think it's a really interesting concept. We haven't really gone too deep on it here or at Optoro in my past where I use the same model, but, uh, but the chapter house and squad uh, concept is definitely something that I've used uh, again at Optoro and here at Axios. Interesting. I, it's it's like I said, it's brand new to me. I had not heard of of these terms, so I want to dig into that uh, afterwards. And and we'll put some links to some of this stuff in the uh, show notes. After. So, yeah, I can't recommend it enough. It's so really awesome. This, yeah, I'm curious. Sure. This is kind of a long winded question, so bear bear with me. But the sure. I as a I cons, I'm a consumer. I'm an end user of Axios and. The other day, I just noticed Axios came up because Game of Thrones was showing the world, hey, we have all this other stuff before we end the show. Axios came up as, I guess, they're you all are reaching out and doing television, moving into television. So in the, sure. I'm not trying to ask you about strategy. I'm more curious about if you, like you, if a company hasn't done television before, do you create a new house guild pod? Did you create a new vein of your team that is completely experienced with that new arm? Or how do you approach something brand new to what the organization has done before? Mm, that's a really interesting question. Uh, so Axios and HBO is doing it. We're about to launch our second season Uh really soon. I'm very, very excited. June 3rd is going to be the first show. Uh, it's been awesome to see that happen. Uh, the film crew comes through our offices here and actually uses our, our office <laughs> on, on camera. So I might be in, in B-roll somewhere nice. in the background. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, that's really, really cool. Very exciting thing for me. Um, the way I think about entering a new business line is, um, you know, I think it's important to do some early product exploration to understand if there's a potential for traction. Uh, and so to do that, you can either use internal staff who has some ideas around it, but I would might like hire a consultant to help us just like learn about that and see if we can connect the dots in, in, in here and there. Uh, for our, uh, for the HBO show, we we're working with a production company who mm. deeply understands this and they're a fantastic resource and they've really, you know, done a lot of that for us, helped us connect the dots. Um, but from a product perspective, you know, especially when we're doing new product development, we go through this whole product discovery process where, you know, we try to uh, do prototypes and ideation to see what, what our products are, how they, fit, how they can fit the market, um, iterate on that um, testing until we find market fit, and then invest deeply in it. And so like, once we've understood that we have an idea that could fit the market, 
um, then that investing certainly happens. And, and then we look at like, okay, does our team have the capabilities today to do that? Could they learn those capabilities? What's the cost of that versus acquiring uh, people uh, from external who would have those or working with partners? And that's, you know, I think always a business conversation that's really interesting to have and to look at all the various uh, components of, uh, of the decision. Uh, but fundamentally, you have to think about it not just as like a like a not invented yeah. here thing or a, as a, I'm going to pull this off the shelf. It's, it's a combination of factors that I think gets into it. So, but the, I think the most fundamental thing is to have a product person who really understands the space and to have an engineer who really understands the technology there. And if you can have those two as like core seeds, I think to really get into something, I think you can build a lot around this. This is an anecdote, which that's just kind of a sidebar, I guess. The This American Life tried this with Showtime maybe three or four years ago. And they basically tried to, they did exactly the opposite of what you're doing, what you're talking about. And they admitted, we they pulled the plug on it and Showtime was like, well, no, we still want to do this. And they were like, we can't handle this. We can't work the way we normally do going down this new path. So I, that's when I remember reading their their podcast their blog post about it and then what you're talking about now that's exactly what they should have done um because tv is just a different beast yeah and i think it's really interesting um the the differentiation between like a digital media company or a media company and a product company i think it's just that it's how do you um how do you address the market how do you launch products like who are you how do you think about the world and if you think about the world as like, we want to take our, uh, you know, editorial perspective to the world, that's one thing and that's great. And I think a lot of great media companies do that. But I think what Axis is trying to do is think about, well, what is the market looking mm-hmm. for? What do people actually want? And how do we, you know, deliver to them products that they actually want? And I think that's what defines a product company. If you were, if you had time to work on code again, what would you choose? Yeah, uh, I Let's see. So I do a fair amount of just like random scripting mm-hmm. stuff to poke at things. So I certainly almost always have a terminal open somewhere. Uh, I have not, no, I may have submitted one PR so far uh, to the team in, in the three months I've been here. I typically do about a pull request a quarter. Uh, uh, it's usually just something here and there that's I'm scratching an itch. I want to make sure that I stay fresh in yeah. technology. I think it's important to, to, to really understand that. Uh, Outside of work, though, I do like to code uh, uh, as much as I can make time. Uh, and uh, so I've got a number of projects on like GitHub that I have or have not contributed <laughs> to. I would love to do. Um, so this is thing uh, called the Recurse Center, which is uh, this uh, thing up in New York. Uh, they used to be called Hacker School, I guess. Uh, but it's like a it's like an mm-hmm. engineer's yeah. sabbatical. <laughs> you can go. For, I know. You know about so it? Someone I worked with took part in that for maybe six months it was a good chunk of time so yeah i know know someone that did it yeah you could do from like a week to a a year i think even uh but i know that if i ever went to recurse uh there's this uh project i've been uh languishing on but it's a it's a ruby uh it's a ruby vm written in haskell and i would really love to get back to that and and uh so I got it to like parse and to actually do like immediate execution mm-hmm. of Ruby code um, through like puts. <laughs> but uh, I need to go uh, re-engineer the internals and switch it to be an actual VM with like uh, probably LLVM instructions. And I would love to spend some time 
poking at that. I, I, feel, I feel like my friend that went to it, and he's very private, so I'm not going to say his name, but I feel like Ruby sure. and Haskell was exactly what he was going after when he went there. It was a very, well, it was very much about, I don't know what the end value to anyone but myself is to do this and learn this, but he held it very close to this as something he wanted to try to work on. So, and that's what he got, yeah. he gathered from it. I mean, I can't remember all the feedback he had about the experience, but I feel like he came out saying I needed to do this. It was worthwhile for him. Yeah, it's really cool. I I think it's really important to have like crazy experiments uh, to some extent. I also think it's really important to try yeah. to actually make things. And so I typically have like a side project here and there. Uh, I've got this one that I was doing with like Elm with a Rails mm -hmm. backend. Uh, and that was a, a, just an interesting way to combine some some actually feasible technology I think you might find in the, in the real world. And then I also just love to think about how, uh, how computing and programming works. And that's why I love Haskell so much, frankly, is because it gives me an opportunity to kind of get my brain to think a bit differently. Um, I actually give this advice to, to mid-level engineers often that you should, uh, this is seven languages yeah. in seven weeks book. I think it's really interesting, but, but fundamentally it's, it's about like getting your brain to think about the task of programming from a lot of different paradigms. I think that just helps you a ton. And I think it just helps me stay, stay fresh. Um, I think about this other thing called oblique strategies. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you've heard of this, but it's basically the, a theory that like, if you, or thinking about a problem, if you instead think about a problem that's in a you know unrelated domain that has some similar structure, it'll actually help to tease apart the problem that you're actually working on. And so like, there's a whole deck of cards you can get around this, but I think it's just an interesting way of like getting my getting your mind working through problems is to solve other problems that aren't exactly yes. the same problem. <laughs> so now I guess I have another question, mainly because I haven't been in your shoes with a team as anywhere near as big as 90, um, even 20. Now, so, and, and this is, happens to many people that move up the ladder from uh, hands-on role to management. How do you personally deal with the lack of hands-on attention? Maybe this is more of a memory from the previous role. When you're not hands-on anymore, perfection is no longer something that's even feasible at your, from your vantage point. How do you, how did you get through that transition to being more of a hands-off people person to, you know, what would actually make stuff work and what good code is. Yeah. Yeah. So it's an interesting assumption you, you were just kind of walking through is that yeah. perfection is something that we want. Uh, I, I don't think I want perfection. I want pragmatism. I want to ship something that's reasonably good enough that, you know, if a user complains about it, I can fix it fast. Um, but I want to get things into the market and get people, things in people's hands and uh, learn and iterate as quickly as possible. So then to step back to your original question, uh, I think about what I do as, um, you know, using systems to solve problems for people. And I used to do that very directly as a programmer. I would, you know, create systems of code that a computer would execute to solve people's problems. And, and the way I really helped myself work through that, because I definitely felt uh, you know, I'm not coding anymore. <laughs> yeah, What's going on? Is exactly. this good? <laughs> that was, a, yeah, I worked through that. And the way I came to it was, you know, I'm still creating systems that solve people's problems. I'm just doing it yeah. in a more abstract way. Uh, I've kind of stepped up the ladder of abstraction uh, a bit. And uh, now I create systems uh, of people and of procedures and processes and of guidelines and, and, 
and boundaries and tools and techniques uh, that solves people's problems. And I do it in a much bigger way. Well, very cool. Um, so, so just in, in reading your, your Twitter profile, um, you've got uh, the, the various hashtags in there and some of that is, is um, identifying gender. So you've, you've identified as trans and you've, uh, you're, you've identified your gender as a she. Um, and and that, that's one of the things that, that we, we uh, need to be talking about in tech uh, generally is diversity among genders, diversity among race. So I wanted to see how, how you, you've been in D.C. with Axios, you've been in D.C. with Opturo, which is, uh, I, it, at least from an outsider's view, is usually a very diverse area. So how, how has... Uh, how has technology treated you throughout the um, throughout your career so far? Yeah, no, that's great. I, I do put those hashtags on my profile because I do like to talk about it, and I'm I'm sure. very happy to to chat. Uh, and I think that as a sidebar, uh, most trans people really don't want to talk about uh, the fact that they're trans. And uh, I feel that because I'm so comfortable, I should talk even more about it. <laughs> <laughs> So, because so many, so few people get to ask these kind of questions, and I think that they're really important to get the perspective. So, so I transitioned in 2017 uh, while at Uptoro as the CTO there, uh, and yeah, the the company was great. Uh, not a single person uh, really gave me any kind of friction, uh, and I had no trouble at all. Uh, and I know that a lot of my friends uh, in the trans community did not have that same kind of experience, especially outside of DC or yeah. San Francisco. Uh, and, uh, it's kind of a bubble and I'm really lucky to, to have been able to go through that, those awkward years really here in a safe place. Um, sure. but, but it's a big challenge for sure. And so I think this is why representation matters so much is so that people can understand that, you know, being trans, going through that kind of a transition, is just a thing that somebody needs to do for themselves. It has no bearing on, uh, their, uh, how they work well i mean frankly it's probably gonna make them a better worker (laughs) (laughs) but to beds a lot of worries you know and things like that uh and it's true like i've been a ton more effective since i've come out um but it brings up a lot of interesting questions like you know women in tech is is a big uh there's a big lack of women in tech right now and so the more i can uh help uh, women, you know, get to the kind of places that I've gotten to is, uh, is a huge passion of mine. I'm very fortunate that Axios has been willing to sponsor uh, DC Femtech, which is an organization here that helps uh, women uh, code and, and just kind of move through technology and a number of other kinds of uh, diverse oriented uh, organizations. Um, I think sponsorship is, is super important. And I would frankly challenge all of the, you know, CTOs or other listeners that you have uh, to think about ways that they can sponsor more diverse people getting into technology. Because I think a lot of it comes down to access and it comes down to expectations yeah. that people have growing up. You know, being raised when people saw me as, uh, as a guy, uh, being into tech was not a weird thing. And I did not get the kind of friction that I know a lot of people who are raised as women got yeah. uh, about their interests. And sure. there's a lot of like, oh, this, is, this isn't for girls or this, this isn't for you. I mean, like that was a big element of privilege that I had. Absolutely. It enabled me to pursue my passion. Uh, and to get to where I've gotten to, um, the, just the way that people, uh, are treated in the workforce. I mean, like I, I say to people like, uh, tongue in cheek, but true. Like I knew that I was being accepted for myself as a woman when people started to talk over me in meetings, like <laughs> <laughs> that's horrible, but yeah, I get it. Right. 
Uh, yeah, but but it's real. So it's like there's so many things that still happen in our society that come across this gendered line, and and I've had the immense privilege to see it very directly. But it just says even more to me that I think it's so important that we think about uh, the things that we do, either thoughtfully or unthoughtfully, that that make a difference. And so sure. I, I would recommend at the most, like, or at the least, sponsoring people, finding people to reach out to, mentoring, you know, spending your time it helps a ton. Sure, and. and uh, in my own clumsy way, that what I've, I've first off, I have a, I have a uh, associate that I've worked with at a previous job who, who's transitioned as well, um, and he works. I'm sorry, she works at Red Hat, um, and and that culture there seems to be fairly fairly inclusive, um, and 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 fairly accepting of that, and um, that's there in North Carolina. So that's that's a nice nice pocket of, of, uh, inclusiveness in, in an area that may, may not be known for that. But, um, one, one, one way I've, I've tried to broaden at least my exposure to the, the, the things that the, the lines of thought we need to be doing is, is I'm trying to follow more, uh, a, a more diverse, um, list on, on my Twitter feeds. I'm trying to make sure that it's, it's not, you know, 80% male anymore. Um, and, and I, I'm, I'm very intentional about if I add a male person, I, 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 I take time to go seek out, uh, a non-male in as well. Um, I That's take awesome. the, the, the time to, to do that. Cause I, I feel I need to see the various perspectives of that. So, um, I, it, I don't know that that's enough, but it, it's, I'm trying to Im- improve what the way I think and, and the way that, 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 that I see the world. Um, well, I, I feel like we've tacked on a really important subject to the tail end of a different like episode in a way. So <laughs> I, like, I, I would rather, I, it's almost like we should have you on again to talk about this one subject. Um, but I guess I'll ask a question related to, I used to live in Chicago. There's a very large LGBTQ community. And so I always, I never really felt like there was a gap as much in the community there as I live in a smaller city now, Kansas City. And I am like, I have no idea where these communities are here. So my, I guess my question is more from your perspective, Jess, if there is a manager who has just, they are isolated and they are very, or maybe ignorant about LGBTQ community, what would you recommend that someone that, is like, I don't know where to get started. I don't have any contacts or I don't have a network. Where, where would you suggest someone in that role that is most likely a cis white male, where would they get started <laughs> to start to kind of break down the walls they've already got up? Yeah, that's a really, I've never been asked that question. Um, there's a lot of websites uh, that are, trying to do like outreach so like um this glad or the hrc or the national the ncte is national center for transgender equality uh there's a a bunch of like advocacy organizations that do those kinds of things um uh what is it p flag uh the parents and families oh geez i forget how to yeah yeah Yeah. so those are good i think kind of overall umbrella places to start um 
certainly online is there's a ton of people if you just like search for like hashtag trans or hashtag there's one that we use a lot called girls like us and so hashtag girls like us and you'll see a whole bunch of random trans stuff (laughs) (laughs) um so you can you can look on twitter you can look uh, on other communities of interest i think that's really interesting and i think you'll start to find uh uh that those communities are tightly integrated in the It'd be really interesting to look at the graphs around these kinds of things. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think those are fantastic places to start. I think, frankly, I am very, very happy to talk to anybody. So if you if you get stuck, please reach out to me on, on Twitter or wherever else, and I'll try to find somebody to connect you with and who want, who wants to chat. Uh, I think a lot of the times it's just about you know listening to somebody and learning about their experience. Um, you know, when when I transitioned. Uh, I uh, had some, my, some of my ex's family was, you know, very uh, upset uh, and reactionary uh, to it. And sitting down and having a conversation, you know, I think it was, I was able to help them understand how this wasn't something that I was choosing to do to their family member so much as it was just something I needed to do for myself. And I think those are really difficult and important conversations to have to understand people's perspectives and their paths and, uh, and how this is not a choice, and it's it's a thing that uh, is simply a part of who some of us are. And as much as like the color of people's skin may be more obvious, uh, you know, who we are inside, I think, is less obvious but equally unchangeable. And I think it's really important to to get that perspective. Yeah, and I mean, I feel like the resistance to this, like you said, that particular part of the family is always about resistance to change, number one, and fear of things you just don't know. And at least that's the perspective I've seen with everyone that either discriminates or just has opinions that are very walled in. And somehow getting just simply meeting people and talking to them, getting part of that network is by far the strongest method to get started in understanding how other people, the perspectives and the way people feel about things. So I think so. And I think it's, it's really interesting how, you know, as technologists, we are so accustomed to change, like change is constant. It's everywhere. And I think that leaves us a little bit more open to thinking, okay, well change in in individuals is uh, to be expected too. Uh, I don't think everybody gets that perspective, especially outside of tech. Um, So I'm very happy to talk. That's, that's very, that's a very interesting stance. uh, That uh, statement that, that, the fact that we're in tech leaves us a little bit more open to change is something I hadn't thought about, but that's, that's very interesting. Yeah. Well, well, thank you again, Jess. Uh, I appreciate you coming on and, and spending time with us and, and sharing all this with, with our listeners. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Wish me luck on a title for this episode that covers everything you talked about. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd be happy to to talk more about diversity and stuff at another point. Awesome. We would definitely like to have you on again to talk about those. Great. Where where can people find you on on the various uh, social networks, Twitter, that sort of thing? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm probably most active on Twitter. Uh, My handle is jschmida, very easily spelled <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's definitely in the show notes <laughs> yeah yeah it's show notes or j-s-z-m-a-j-d-a uh if you search uh Shmida on linkedin if you can spell it uh, i'm certainly there happy to chat uh 
And my blog is uh, Loki, L-O-K-I dot W-S. And I've got a discuss thing on there. If you'd like to have a conversation about the post, I'm more than happy to engage with you. Well, great. All right. Well, well thanks again. And, and have, a, uh, have a great Thanks. Day. You too. Take care. Thanks for listening to the CTO Think Podcast. Show notes and previous episodes can be found on our website at ctothink.com. Reviews on Apple iTunes are always appreciated and help promote the show. Patreon contributions help us to produce episode transcripts, which allow people that are deaf or hard of hearing to access the show. If you have feedback, ideas, or want to be a guest, please email us at hello at ctothink.com. Show music is Dumpster Dive by Mark Wallach, licensed by premiumbeat.com. Voiceover work by meganvoices.com. You'll hear from us next week.